Uh, this morning we are going to examine um, the Samson narrative. We're looking at some Old Testament narratives these days. Uh, in this case, between Judges 13 and 16, you'll hear the text read uh, during the course of my sermon. But one of the things I want to say kind of in an introductory way is that one of the lessons that we're learning is the Old Testament often teaches indirectly uh, as opposed to what we're more accustomed to in the New Testament more directly, though, of course, both are found in both Testaments. But oftentimes, the New Testament, we find propositions exposited, teaching is given, direction is exp- uh, given forth. Um, and oftentimes in the Old Testament, we see narratives unfold without a lot of commentary, and a lot of, uh, we have to kind of observe the principles that are being unfolded in the Old Testament narratives. So, for example, it's one thing to hear a, a, a command in the sin list against adultery. It's quite another to see the whole horror of it lived out in the life of David and Bathsheba. Um, it's one thing to hear about the importance of uh, obeying the voice of the Lord, and another to see it lived out in the struggles in the life of Jonah. It's one thing to see uh, the New Testament command us to, to trust God, even in difficult circumstances. It's another to see it lived out in the life of Abraham or Moses or Gideon or so many others that we encounter in the Old Testament. And so this text uh, generally falls in that category as well. The, the Bible not only tells us <clears throat> what happened, often doesn't tell us what should have happened. We've already explored that before. Uh, the Bible often kind of unvarnishedly kind of lays out sometimes very sinful activities, and this is the what happens. This is how people have lived, and we observe the consequences of sinful action as well as obedient action right in the pages of the Old Testament. But we also, and this is the point, point more for today, we observe not only what, maybe not what should have happened, but also what we don't, we have to observe what could have happened the Bible often tells us what happened, not what could have happened, because this particular um, narrative we'll see really lays out for us the, the danger when one loses their vigilance. And I think Dr. Coleman, if there's anything that I would say about his life and this testimony today, exemplified a man of vigilance who kept the, has kept the faith. And... Um, this is something that is so crucial to this particular narrative and where we're un- un- unfolding here before us. When I was in seminary, uh, I went to um, the second best seminary in the country. I don't know why I didn't have the sense to come here, but I went to uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Massachusetts, and uh, like you and your experience, I looked around you know, day by day, and we had our little cohort of students, and we laughed and talked, and we, we, we dreamed about serving the Lord. And across the board, um, not just during the, year, the precise years I was there, but in general, the years, that, that period of time in Gordon Conwell's history, the Lord produced a number of amazing leaders. I've been looking at some actually right now. Ben Witherington was there and Christine Paul, and I just see others that were there in those, those years, and Doug Birdsall, who became the head of Lausanne, and uh, Tim Keller down in New York today. And it's on and on and on. It was amazing leadership that came forth during those years at Gordon Conwell. But I also remember being there with students who were just as dedicated and just as committed and smarter than we were and more focused in so many ways. And we were, had so many expectations that now I'm, I'm, I'm 57 years old, I can look back and we can see what's happened in their lives. These are people that we you know, ate meals with and in our dorms with together. 
And they've ended their ministry at this point. Uh, many of them, one is a car salesman. One is ended in disappointment and anger against the church. Another has uh, threw an entire ministry away in 15 minutes of, of pleasure of an adulterous affair. And so what, what you'll see is that one of the big markers that separates ministry is not the content you're receiving, as important as that is, but the character that's being formed and the vigilance of which you protect and guard your ministry before God. And so this text, as uh, much as any other, um, brings this out. Uh, this is a text about vigilance. The, the, the Bible calls us and commands us to be vigilant, be on the alert, watchful. This is um, uh, Gregoreo. It's the word for being awake, alert, vigilant. Uh, a lot of these texts in the scriptures, uh, take from 1 Peter 5, 8, be controlled and on the alert. Uh, the King James, remember it said, uh, be sober-minded and vigilant, uh, for the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I think it's okay in seminary to acknowledge that the enemy will like, would like to devour, devour your ministry. And it will not be a question of content that will save you in that day. It'll be a question of character. And so we'll begin, we'll first, uh, we'll actually have the first reading done by Haley. Please come, Haley, and read for us the first text. A selection of readings from the book of Judges. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come on his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The woman bore a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir in him at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Once Samson, once Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw a Philistine woman. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw a Philistine woman at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among your kin or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me because she pleases me. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he was seeking a pretext to act against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. When he came to the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion roared at him. The spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and he tore the lion apart, barehanded, as one might tear apart a goat. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson. After a while, he returned to marry her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating it as he went. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they ate it. 
but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the carcass of the lion. The word of God for the people of God. This narrative takes place in 12th century BC, and by this time, Israel has come out of Egyptian slavery. They've come through their 40 years of wilderness wandering, and finally the conquest of the promised land. Then a new generation arises who does not remember the Lord, and they begin to fall back into their paganism and their old practices. And then God raises up these special deliverers known as judges who began to call Israel back to himself. And Book of Judges highlights 12 of these deliverers, uh, Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. And of all of these, Samson in particular gets quite a bit of narrative material in the Old Testament. And in this case, we are told, as was read beautifully, that uh, Samson's parents, before he was born, they were given a vision, and the angel appeared to them, and explicitly it says in verse 2 of chapter 13 that, that she was barren and childless, and yet the angel Lord appears and says she will bear a child, and he is to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, Nazarites, if you remember, is a special consecration allotment that eventually got brought into mainstream Israel practice. And essentially, it's outlined in number 6, 1 to 21, what would be the practices that would govern a Nazaritic vow. Essentially, there are three main regulations to a Nazaritic vow. Uh, first, they would abstain from all wine, complete abstention from alcohol for their lives. They would not ever cut their hair. This, again, is tied into various pagan practices that are being clearly seen visibly that you're not part of that. The word Nazarite means probably to have like an unpruned vine, so this is like visually seen by your hair being uncut. And then thirdly, you would never be allowed to touch a corpse or any kind of unclean food. So this is actually a higher uh, standard than the priest would be under who did have certain situations where they could drink alcohol and certain bodies they could touch, etc. This is a very high calling. One of the differences is that this uh, Nazarotic vow is available for men and for women, whereas the priesthood was only for men. And so we have examples of women who took on Nazarotic vows. Uh, the most famous in the Mishnah is uh, Queen Helena, who took a seven-year Nazarotic vow and in the last days of her vow, like six years, you know, 300 and some odd days into it, she came in inadvertently into contact with a dead body and had to start her vow all over again. Interesting. But in the, um, in the scriptures, and by the way, we have examples, uh, uh, potentially it seems like indication of the Apostle Paul himself taking that Nazaretic vow in Acts 18, verse 18, and again, at least joining others in their vow in Acts 21. So this is something that we appears in the New Testament. But as far as a lifetime Nazaretic vow, it's extraordinarily unusual. Okay, normally it's a period vow. This is a, the idea that setting aside someone for life is very unusual. Only three possibilities are there in Scripture where some many scholars believe this would be three examples of lifetime Nazarites. Uh, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. Now, all three of these were dedicated by God prior to their birth and given over for a lifetime of service. All three come from barren women uh, where God miraculously opens the womb, obviously Manoah's wife here, but then Hannah and Elizabeth. 
So these are three extraordinary people. Of course, they live in dramatically, sorry, dramatically different times. But you can kind of envision them all being in seminary together, just for the sake of this, art, of this, of this class. So, you know, here it is, John the Baptist, Samuel, Samson, sitting around at the, you know, down at the cafeteria, you know, and uh, dream up their ministries. And then they look back on their ministries years later, and which of these two, which, which one of these is not like the others? This is the question. It seems like in some ways you have three Nazarites, lifetime Nazarites. One becomes the head of the whole prophetic stream, uh, Samuel. One becomes the culmination of all the prophets, the one who ushers in the Messiah, John the Baptist. And then Samson, not so much. Why? Well, what happens? We find out his life is blessed. And actually the same language is used that he's filled with the Spirit. He's anointed by God. He's going down to Timnah to, uh, he's, he has this interest in this Philistine woman. He goes down there and, uh, to make the arrangements for the, for the marriage. He, in the process of going down there, he's passing through the, the vineyards and the fields, and suddenly a lion jumps out. And he immediately, the Spirit of God comes upon him, and he just tears this lion in half and kills it instantly. This, show, this is meant to show the power of a, a man or a woman under the anointing of God. The Bible says that the same text that uses the word for vigilant, that uh, Satan comes like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And when Satan comes to us as a roaring lion, we often recognize it, we identify it, and we, under the Spirit's power, can destroy it. But, of course, Paul also says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan also masquerades as an angel of light. And so in the text, remember, this is, of course, later on becomes part of the uh, this, this story where he tells the, the, uh, the, the uh, riddle, you know, out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. He goes back down to several weeks later uh, to do the final arrangements of the wedding, and he's traveling uh, separate from his parents again this time. And he, like anybody who had this experience, I mean, how many times have you been met by a roaring lion that you tear apart with your bare hands? Okay, this is not like your normal experience. So he can't help but remember it, right? So he's remembers, like, wow, this was the place where that happened. And like anybody else, he was curious, wonder what happened to the lion. And so he goes around and he finds the place where he had this encounter. And there in the lion's carcass, honey, uh, bees had built a honeycomb. Now you remember that a Nazarite cannot touch a dead corpse. And one of the interesting things about this lion, this lion actually had more power over Samson dead than it did alive. And no one saw it, no one was there, and he reached out and he scooped his hand into the carcass of the lion and he ate the honey, thus breaking his Nazaritic vow. But he still felt the same Nothing seems to have changed, and he goes on down to Timnah. Now let's see what else happens, and now we're going to have the next reading read. Please come forward, Emery, and read for us once again.
We'll continue with selections from the book of Judges. <clears throat> and they said to him, We have come down to bind you, so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson answered them, Swear to me that you yourselves will not attack me. And they said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not kill you. So they bound him with new ropes, and they brought him up from the rock. When they came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax, as if they had caught fire, and his bonds were melted off his hands. When they, and then he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and he reached out and took it, and with it he killed a thousand men. Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. When he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and that place is called Ramoth-Lehi. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me what makes your strength so great, and how you could be bound so that no one can subdue you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven bowstrings that have not been dried out, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. Then the lords of the Philistines brought seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried out, and she bound him with them. And while the men were lying in wait in the inner chamber, she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a strand of fiber snaps when it touches the fire. So the, strength of his, the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you can be bound. He said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I'll become weak like anyone else. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. The men lying in wait were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you could be bound. He said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and make it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So while he was asleep, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web and made them tight with the pin. Then she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me three times now and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day and pestered him until he was tired unto death. And so he told her his whole secret and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have become a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me, and I would become weak, just like anybody else. When Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, This time come up, for he has told me his whole secret. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her, and they brought money in their hands. And she let him fall asleep in her lap, and she called a man, and had him shave off the seven locks from his head. 
He began to weaken, and his strength left him. Then she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. When he awoke from his sleep, he thought, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in their prison. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amazing story, isn't it? So the next chapter 15 recounts the aftermath of the first breaking of the Nazarite vow. They bind him. Again, he seems to have amazing strength. He picks up a fresh jawbone and uses that to attack uh, the Philistines. The, of course, a, it literally means a moist jawbone. It, in the Hebrews, uh, you know, Leviticus, at least a lion's a clean animal. The donkey is an unclean animal, and this is now done publicly. So he's now publicly grasping the carcass of a dead, unclean animal. By chapter 16, we see another Philistine woman, this time Delilah, who famously is the one who, bribes him, who gets bribed and is offered 1,100 shekels of silver, so 140 pounds of silver, if she will betray his secret. Now what happens, the, the account, as you just heard, is so remarkable because she you know, entices him to tell her, and he first finally says to her, well, Tie me with, with seven fresh thongs. So what does she do when he sleeps? She ties him with seven fresh, seven fresh thongs. Calls the Philistines. He breaks them. Uh, he, she begs him again. Tell me the real secret. So, okay, what's well, new ropes? He tie, she ties him with new ropes when he sleeps. The Philistines come. Uh, he, he breaks it open. Um, he finally, she says, well, it's okay. Weave the seven braids of my hair into the loom and do the pen and all that. And uh, he, she does it again. Each time that she betrays him to the Philistines. And then finally he tells her the secret of his strength is no razor has ever been used on my head. Now when you read that, your first response should be, Samson is an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's stupid. (laughs) I mean, you know, you heard the expression, you know, uh, fool me once, you know, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me right? This is like fool me two times, three times, four times. I mean, the guy doesn't get it, right? But is that really what's going on? Is he that stupid? And the answer, perhaps so. Maybe Lawson Stone can like give us some light here on this. But the other deeper point, it seems to me, is that he had progressively broken the, the Nazarite vow, and everything seemed to be the same, and so what happened was he, realized, he actually began to think that he was strong. It, he didn't really believe it was tied to the Nazarite vow. He was Samson. The guy was amazingly strong. Nothing else has seemed to be hindering it. He forgot the source of his strength was in the Nazarite vow. And, and again, it wasn't because you know, cutting hair or anything else like that, any outward thing was in itself inherently able to secure him before God. Actually, those were like any sacrament. They were outward signs of an inward work of God's grace in his life. By, by obeying the outward signs and maintaining your heart commitment to it, then God kept his covenant to protect you with his strength. So as the Nazarite vow was gradually, gradually you know, abandoned, he began to think that he was actually uh, strong, strong in his own sense. So he lays there asleep, 
probably alcohol-induced, by the way, uh, so they can actually shave his head at him waking up. He is both physically and spiritually asleep. When he is finally awakened by the Philistines, they take him, they bind him, they gouge his eyes out. He has no strength, and they put him grinding on the grist mill. This means he is literally helping to move a millstone around, around and around and around. And he wonders what happened. And the amazing thing is he cannot remember the time when he left the Lord. It all just seemed to happen little by little by little. He lost his vigilance. He never could remember when it was he left his following of the Lord. This is a narrative about, there's actually many layers this narrative, but one of the narrative layers of this is the importance of vigilance and maintaining our vigilance and protecting our callings, protecting our fidelity before God, protecting our character before God. Because Satan will come to us and attack us both as a roaring lion at times and also as sweet honey in the honeycomb. Well, I'm going to close with this story because our time has concluded. But if you ever go to Mount Everest and ever have the aspiration to climb Mount Everest, and by the way, Asbury Seminary is kind of like base camp, uh, and your ministry in some ways is climbing Mount Everest. But if you ever actually go to Mount Everest, one of the interesting things about it is how expensive it is. Quite apart from all the Sherpas and equipment and oxygen and tanks and all of this that is involved in that, the permit, just the permit to the Nepalese government to climb, to get the permission to even climb Mount Everest is $11,000. All right? An actual trip would probably cost you 45 minimum up to $75,000 to climb Mount Everest. But the permit, I guess I, I can see right now many of you just took that off of your bucket list. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But a $11,000 permit fee to the Nepalese government to climb Mount Everest. But there's, this was also shown on the sign there in Nepal. Discounts available for lesser summits. Now, I believe in many ways that Asbury Seminary is like a ministerial base camp. You're getting prepared. You're getting equipped. You're getting your, your bags packed. You know you're going to need oxygen at times. You're going to need to find how to breathe through certain situations that come up in the ministry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But at some point, you're, going to, you're setting out for this journey, and the journey is the journey of faithfulness. The journey is a journey of vigilance. The journey is, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And there'll be so many opportunities along the way where real decisions we made, many of them quietly in your own heart and life, where you'll be tested about your vigilance. And Satan will effectively be saying to you, there's discounts available for lesser summits. Satan wants you to take a lesser summit, to set up for something less than what God has planned for you. Now, what God has planned for you may not be a big public ministry. We're not talking about that. We're talking about faithfulness. Everyone in this room has a calling from God for something that is specific to you and your gifts and your callings. For some of you, it may be a, a public ministry. Someday people will say, wow, did you know so-and-so went to Asbury Seminary? Okay, that will happen. 
We have all the time. Many of you will write books that you haven't even thought about yet. Many of you will write books and they'll change the world. You'll pastor churches that'll change the world. That's not the point of that per se. Many of you will have quiet ministries that the world may not know about, but God knows about it. It's your Mount Everest. And in the final day, the Lord's generosity is if you even give a cup of cold water to a prophet, you get a prophet's reward. So God will honor us by being faithful to our calling, but we must be vigilant and must always remember the importance of daily vigilance throughout the course of our ministry. And our prayer for you as, as leaders, I speak on behalf of the trustees here, uh, we pray for everyone here that your ministry would be for the long haul and that you would land on that day where we can say, praise God, thou good and faithful servant. Let us pray. We thank you for this lesson, though painful, from the life of Samson. We don't know what could have been in his life. We know you used him, and you did use him powerfully, but we don't know what could have been. Lord, we want to end our lives in a way that brings all honor and glory to you. And we want every ounce of our being, every fiber of our being to count for you. And help us, Lord, through your spirit to be vigilant to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.